The more chaotic things get in our world, the more we wonder um, if anyone is really in control. Right? That's kind of a question. Is history headed in any type of direction? Or are we just kind of aimlessly meandering to a pointless end? Right? That's the question. Is there any type of plan here? Um, is anyone steering this ship? I think a lot of us thought that question um, last year. Um, with all the chaos that seemed to be ensuing. And, and, and can I just say that people have been asking that question for thousands of years now. What is anybody in control? And, and we do live in a time of history where it's kind of all in front of our face, where we can see a lot more. But it's always been chaotic and it's always been crazy. I just want to kind of say that. But last week, if you remember, we saw that there is, in fact, a plan. And there is, in fact, someone who is in control. And, and I would just encourage you if, you, if you were gone last week and you missed that sermon, um, jump on the podcast and listen to it, not because I'm a good preacher, but because that text, man, is it powerful um, to behold our God on his throne. That was last week. And we saw that, if you remember, God had this scroll in his hand. And we said that that scroll contained the plans for the consummation of all things, for how it's all going to end. This is how justice will be satisfied. This is how judgment is going to come. This is, how, this is what's going to bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And and we saw that no one was worthy to open the scroll. That question echoed throughout creation. Who is worthy? And no one was worthy. And John fell on his face and was weeping because no one was worthy. But they said, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he has conquered and he is worthy. And Jesus came and he took that scroll. If you remember, and I said, when he took that scroll, he took the reins of history because of his his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his victorious resurrection and ascension. He was worthy as God and man to take the scroll and to bring in the consummation of all things. And so we saw last week, yes, there is someone in control. It's King Jesus. He is holding the reins and he has been for the last 2000 years, even though when we look at the last 2000 years, it definitely looks like there was nobody holding the reins. But that's the point of Revelation. I tell you again and again and again, this was not written to a church that had their own little office and their study and, and their little whiteboard where they could make up little, uh, like little charts of the, how it's going to end. This was a church that was suffering, being persecuted, being marginalized, and questioning, is King Jesus really worth following? And is he even the king? Like, it doesn't seem like this is a good choice for me. I feel like maybe I should quit. Maybe I should give up. Maybe I should throw in the towel. And what do we see through the letters over and over and over? To him who conquers, to him who conquers, to him who overcomes. How are we going to overcome? By beholding God on his throne. By seeing the lamb with the scroll. By knowing that he's in control. That's why Revelation was written. And so when your world seems crazy, when it seems like your personal world is out of control, remember who's on the throne. Remember who holds the scroll. And today we get to read about what happens when Jesus starts to open the scroll. It's a scroll sealed with seven seals. And each of these seals brings in a different judgment. And, and we're going to look at this and, and we're going to get to see how this unfolds. And so if you're, if you're joining us for the first time or online, um, I just want to warn you, remind you that this is our fourth week in Revelation. And this is apocalyptic literature, which means there's some bizarre imagery. We're going to see that today. And this, these images are meant to capture our attention and to unveil what is really going on in the world. Um, in the first week, I talked about superhero movies. And I said that if you can imagine um, not knowing what a superhero movie was, not knowing that genre, being familiar with that, it would kind of throw you off, like, what is going on? And, and if 2,000 years from now, some people found a superhero movie, and they were like, whoa, this is, 
I, I wonder if it's a historical documentary. Like, they would really misinterpret that movie. And we need to understand when we go to Revelation, this is a specific type of literature. It's very symbolic. Okay, imagine if someone took your life and, and did a symbolic movie of it over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, okay? Um, or more for some, okay, that's fine, right? If, if, if they did that and it was symbolic and there was all this imagery, it would look a little bit different. Um, but that's what Revelation is. It's the Christian story kind of put in this apocalyptic literature to capture our minds and attentions. And I told you this book is made up of a lot of sevens. We've got the introduction, then we've got seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and then I would argue seven visions, and then a conclusion. So John loves the number seven, okay? But the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls, those are the judgments that are poured out <clears throat> from the throne that we saw last week. Now, here's where things get a little bit kind of dicey. People have different interpretations of how this is, and it's fine if you disagree, okay? Some people think these judgments build on one another in chronological order, okay? And so just as we read them, um, we got the seals, and then we have the trumpets, and then we have the bowls, okay? That's how some interpret these, but others see more of a repetition. The fancy word for that is recapitulation, okay? So add that to apocalyptic, and you can impress your friends, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't do that, right? Basically, there's a retelling of the same events um, from different perspectives. You could see it like this. Um, a lot of you watched the Super Bowl, last week and imagine um, that you were given access you were given to, you get to go to that game and you saw it maybe from the 50 yard line but you also had a camera here and a camera here and a camera above and a camera over there and and you got to watch that game afterwards from all those different angles that's how some people see revelation it's different camera angles of really the same events throughout history okay um where am i in this mix i'm somewhere in the middle I see that there's definitely recapitulation. There's definitely repetition here. Um, but I also see this chronology and the fact that there's an intensification here. Okay, So the seals um, judge a quarter of the earth. Then the trumpets judge a third. And then the bulls, it's all of them. And so there's definitely intensification here in these judgments. Okay, And so I see a little bit of both here. Um, as we continue with that, um, there's, a, there's some who think all of these judgments take place in the seven-year tribulation at the end of the world. That's kind of the popular interpretation today. Um, that is not uh, where I stand, okay? So I, again, see some of it as history, some of it as right now, some of it as future, okay? And while I'm going to argue, again, for a specific framework here as we go through these seals, I want to just remind you again, I don't claim to be infallible. And even if we disagree on the chronology of these events, again, we can all get the application. Okay, and so let's, let's get that, all right? Um, so with that being said, I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag here and tell you that the judgments we're about to read, the seal judgments, I see as a dramatic portrayal of the entire period between Christ's first and second comings. Okay, that's, that's what I see here, and I think that you'll see maybe that. I'm going to try to argue that as we go through it, that these are characteristic signs of the times in which we live, and they fit really nicely with what Jesus told his followers to expect. Okay, I know that was a lot of information, um, but we're going to move into the text now, and I think you'll enjoy going forward. So first of all, we're going to look at the seals of judgment. And the first one is in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And I would argue that this is about messianic pretenders. Let's read this. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! 
And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So what I see here is a messianic pretender. Um, I don't see this as being Jesus the conqueror, who we see later on the white horse. I see this as a pretender, um, someone who's claiming to be Jesus. And interestingly, in Matthew 24, 5, Jesus says, this is what you should expect Okay, um, this is what's coming in Matthew 24, 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. So later I'll just challenge you, read Matthew 24 and read Revelation 6, and you're going to see a lot of similarities. I'm going to point some of those out. But Jesus said, you should expect messianic pretenders, people who are going to come, and they're going to claim to be me, and they're not me. And they're going to lead many astray. We have many of those throughout history. Um, we've seen many cult leaders claim to be Jesus that have led many people astray. We've seen a lot of people claim to be a Messiah. They wouldn't necessarily say, I'm Jesus, but they say, I've got the solution. Follow me. Listen to what I'm saying. Throw away that old Bible. You don't need that. We've got a lot of that going on today. Now, when you have a guy who stands up and says, I am the solution. Follow me. A lot of times that's going to lead to war, right? Especially if he comes conquering and to conquer. And so that brings us to the next seal in verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Something to, to just side note to throw in here. Notice its rider was permitted. Just keep that in mind that God is in control of evil. And evil can't happen unless God permits it. Now, there's a different relationship between direct judgment on God and then evil, and then evil he permits it, but he's still sovereign over it. Okay, but, but nothing can happen to you apart from the permission of God. Isn't that a great truth to know? And, and, and the same God who will not allow anything to happen to you apart from his permission is the one that said, I'm going to work all things together for your good. How can he do that unless he's in complete control? Right? I mean, how comforting is that? Even when terrible things happen, God, I don't know why you would permit this to happen to me. But man, I know you're good. I know you're loving. I know you have a plan. But we see God is in control even of this evil um, person who comes on this right, bright red horse to slay people. Okay, I see this as talking about wars and rumors of wars. Again, going to Matthew 24, listen to this. Right after he says, Many are going to come in my name and claim to be me and lead people astray. He says this in verse 6. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Is it not true that wars have been characteristic of this age? I have a few stats here that I kind of gathered from different um, sermons and lectures that I listened to as I was studying this. Um, think about Hitler and the Nazis slaughtering 6 million Jews. Or Chairman Mao, tens of millions of his political enemies in China. Or Pol Pot slaughtered two million of the ten million of his citizens. Or how about Joseph Stalin? Conservative estimates say 20 million of his own citizens, but there's upwards of 35 million. Let's just bring it to America. Our Civil War, 640,000 American citizens were killed. World War I, more than 40, 41 million people worldwide. World War II, more than 60 million. Vietnam War, 1.3 million. Someone did a study, and they looked at from 1870 to the year 2000. 
And they counted more than 3,168 wars in that period. So people who say, this is, this is future. This is all future in the end. I just like, I look at history and I say, I don't think so. I think there's been messianic pretenders. And I think there's been a lot of wars and rumors of wars throughout this age. But guess what? Jesus is in control of all of it. And they all fit within his mysterious plan. We don't know necessarily why he allows it. But this is part of his plan. Isn't that awesome to look back at, at the chaos and the, and the horrible things that we see in our past and know, and know that God was in control of that? I think 2020 was almost a little bit of a gift for some of us in America because we've just kind of been kind of cushioned from reality a little bit in our country. And, and I'm not saying you should feel guilty for being born in America. God's sovereign over that too. Amen? But, but let's realize we've been cushioned from a lot of what's gone on in this world. Wars and rumors of wars. Seal 2. Seal 3. Verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. I think again, this lines up with Jesus in Matthew 24, 7. He said, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines. And earthquakes in various places. So, so this, I think, has the idea of famines, of the economic imbalance that we see. Um, notice that the high price here, uh, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but don't harm the oil and the wine. There's people that are just living in luxury, and there's people who are just in complete poverty. This is part of one of the sealed judgments that came from the throne. So the question is, what do false messiahs, wars, and famines lead to? A lot of tragic death. And that's seal four. Verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Listen to verse seven and eight together of Matthew 24. This is Jesus. Wouldn't it be cool to be like, hey, Jesus, how's it all gonna go down when you leave? Like we have that, Matthew 24, okay? He says this, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains, okay? One of the, one of the keys to kind of understanding Revelation is, is you're not gonna get really a lot of new things from Revelation as far as doctrine goes, um, because it's apocalyptic, it's imagery. And so you go to other passages that are clear that, that help us understand this imagery. That's why I'm bouncing to Matthew 24 a lot. And so very clearly, Jesus lays out how it's going to go down. And I think the seals in, in Revelation 6 parallel with that really nicely. Okay, but notice Jesus says that there's, these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Okay, how many women in here have had a child before? Okay. All right, so we men don't understand. We don't get it. But I'm told that birth pains, um, what, what happens is they get closer together and they get more intense as the baby's about to come, right? Can I get an amen? Okay. Um, so what Jesus is saying is, this is going to be characteristic of the age, but the end's not yet. It's going to get worse. There's going to get an intensification. There's, they're going to get closer together. We see here, notice that they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. When we look at the trumpet judgments, they're given authority over a third. And then the bowl judgments, they're like, it's all of it, man. It's done. Okay, and so I think this, again, this is characteristic of this age. Okay, here's some more stats for you. 
In about 165 AD, a pestilence in the Roman Empire um, that lasted over 15 years um, ended up killing a quarter to half of the entire population. That seems to be what Jesus was saying would come. In 1692 to 1694, 15% of the entire population of France starved to death. 2.8 million people. In 1695, a famine struck Estonia, killing nearly one-fifth of the population. 1669 or 96, a third of Finland died of starvation. The Black Death, or the Bubonic Plague, began in the 1330s in Central or East Asia. If you remember, it was carried by fleas and then to rats, and they went into the cargo ships, and that was taken to North Africa and Europe. And the low-end estimate is 75 million people died from that. But the high end is 200 million people. Talk about death and famine and war and pestilence. Like, this is not something in the far distant future. Like, this is something that we can look in the past and see. And Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. This is characteristic of the age to come, okay, of this age that we're living in. In England alone, four out of ten of every person died. In Florence, there was 100,000 Okay, in the, in the population, when this plague hit, 50,000 people died. Can you imagine? In March of 1520, in eight months, 8 million people died from smallpox. I mean, we could, we could go on. In January 1918, the Spanish flu took out, or at least um, infected, about a half a billion people. Like, like this, is, this is just what we've seen in history. And Jesus said, this is what's going to happen in history. Like, how cool is that? That, that Jesus knows what's going to happen because he knows he's the one that's going to uh, open those seals, right? This brings us to seal 5, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Can I just say it's not wrong to ask God questions? A lot of times we question God, but we don't bring our questions to God. And that's where things get, get really messy. Bring your questions directly to him. Say, God, why'd you allow this into my life? And, and you may not always get the answer you want, but it's, it's okay to bring your questions to the Lord because all through scripture we see that being done and they don't get rebuked for it. And guess what? It's okay to ask for justice, for vengeance. We, don't, we do not bring vengeance ourselves. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But it's okay to ask God for vengeance, for justice in a situation. And here, these souls who have been killed, these are persecuted Christians who were killed for their faith, are there praying, God, when are you going to judge these people? Like, when are you going to bring justice, God? When it, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to wait to bring justice on the earth? In verse 11, then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You know what this tells me? That every persecuted Christian who dies for their faith is, is part of God's plan to mysterious plan that we don't understand um, for, for how this is going to end. But every one of those is special and precious to him. And he, and he has it counted already. He knows exactly how many need to be killed for his purposes to be completed. Like 
That, that should tell you, again, he is sovereign. He is in control. There is never a persecuted Christian who dies for their faith that was such a random, tragic accident. No, no, no. It was all part of the plan of God. He, so, he says, rest a little longer until the number is complete that are going to be killed for the faith. Again, Matthew 24, this is what Jesus said. Listen to this. Then, after he listed all the wars and rumors of wars and false messiahs, he says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Listen, do you realize that this, this happened right away? And, and I just wonder if we could go back and we could talk to those first Christians um, who were dragged through the streets by horses, who were crucified upside down, who were boiled in oil, who were covered in skins and had dogs attacked them, who were burned alive, who were thrown to animals. Some of them were, were covered in tar and lit on fire in garden parties to light the parties. And, and to go to those Christians and say, hey, this isn't the tribulation. The tribulation is 2,000 years from now at the very end. Like, what are you talking about? The tribulation began right then. And it's been happening all around the world since Jesus ascended. We're just so cushioned by it here that we just don't have any clue. That's why I say go to the voice of the martyrs. Get that calendar. Pray for our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted all over the world. Listen, the tribulation, it's already been going on. I read that in the, in the 20th century alone, more Christians died for their faith than all 1900 before. I mean, think about that. In the 20th century alone, more Christians died than 1,900 years before that. Like, it is, it is increasing. We're just so cushioned. And man, we're frustrated when it feels like, oh man, uh, my rights are being taken away. Or, oh, I, I, I tried to share my faith and someone made fun of me. Or, oh, I couldn't hang out with it. Like, we're just clueless about what it means to be a Christian. And, and listen, I may get thrown in jail for preaching the Bible here in a few years. Like, it might get rough here in America. We ought to be ready for it. It's, it's just natural. This is what's been happening. Okay, and so Jesus says, they're going to do this to you. And then after making some application on all of what goes down, listen to what Jesus says in verse 29 of the, of the discourse in Matthew 24. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, so that's how Jesus says it's going to end. That was Matthew 24. Did you notice? Okay, um, there's going to be the sun darkened, the moon's not going to give its light, the stars are going to fall. It's this apocalyptic, like, just cosmic ending of all things when Jesus returns. Now listen to seal 6 in verse 12. And here's why I highlight that. Because I, I believe this is the end. Okay, if, if the seals are the whole church age, I believe seal 6 is the end, and then he's going to back up and retell it from different angles. To, to say that this is just the beginning of the tribulation just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, this is very early in the tribulation for some who teach that. And, and again, I'm not saying that's heresy. I just, I don't see it. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Like, I just don't see how there's still going to be an earth after that for more, for more years of tribulation. Like, this is the end. This is, this is what the whole Old Testament talked about as the great day of the Lord. This is obviously apocalyptic literature, but, I mean, if every mountain and island is moved and the sky is falling and the moon and sun, like, there's no more earth left, okay? But when we get to the trumpets, it talks about the, the, the grass being scorched and things like that. So that's why I say there's some repetition here, okay? Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth... And the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? Can you imagine? Can you imagine being one of those people and seeing the sky opened up and seeing the lamb on his throne pouring out the judgment and just running to a mountain and asking for the mountain to fall on you and die because you don't want his wrath? This is a clear and dramatic parallel to what Jesus just told us. It is a catastrophic description of the day of the Lord when God comes to judge evil and vindicate his people. The sun is black, the sky is falling, every mountain and island is removed. Okay, this is when God brings his final judgment, all right? And that's why I interpret it, the book the way I interpret it, okay? Now, looking back at the last 2,000 years, it's pretty incredible to kind of see how, how, like, Jesus nailed it, right? Like, he nailed it. When we look at the past 2,000 years, all of this stuff is characteristic of our age. Now, you may wonder, why? Why were there wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and false messiahs and persecuted Christians like why did that have to be part of God's plan? And we don't know for sure, but when we look throughout the Old Testament, we do see this pattern that God often brings judgment and he uses his judgment to punish evil, but also to purify and vindicate his people. And that's why I said if persecution comes to America, we can look at history and we can know that the church has always thrived under persecution. It's always grown. It's always because it weeds out the Christians who are just there to kind of meet friends and, and, and get new business partners. I'm not saying that's any of you, but I'm just saying like people use the church for their own purposes. Okay. And when persecution comes, right, like if local pastor of Calvary Port Austin tossed in jail for preaching the Bible, like I don't know if our attendance is going to grow from that. Right. It, it, from, from people who are just kind of mediocre Christians. But you know who will come and pray and gather and hopefully pray for for me in jail? The ones who are real. The ones who are like, i got God's spirit. I don't have a spirit of fear, but of power. And I'm going to overcome. It also, if we look at the last 2,000 years, it kind of makes 2020 seem a little more normal, doesn't it? So again, you, you may think all of these things are future. I see this as just a dramatic portrayal of the last 2,000 years. Okay? That's how I see it. But again, we don't have to agree on that if we can get the application. So what's the application? Well, at the very end of these judgments... We see this question, and they ask this question, who can stand? Who can stand? And this is the question that all of us must wrestle with. When God comes to bring judgment, who can stand against that? Right? And that's what chapter 7 answers. And listen, I know where we are. I'm not going to spend a ton of time in chapter 7. But in chapter 7, we have the answer 
to the question of who can stand when God brings his wrath, when God pours out his judgment. And you may think, well, I don't think I'm going to be here for that, so I don't have to worry. But the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment. So either way, you're going to get judged. So the question is, will you be able to stand on that day? And verse in chapter 7 tells us who can stand. In chapter 7, um, we're not going to be able to read it all, but he says this um, in verse 7. After this I saw, in verse 1, after this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Okay, and then look at verse 3. He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So here we have the answer. Who can stand against the day of God's wrath? Those who are sealed. Okay? Now, if you remember in our Ephesians study, the seal of God was the Holy Spirit. I think this is a dramatic portrayal of it, um, where they're sealed on their forehead and their hand. This is the Holy Spirit. And notice the number of sealed is 144,000. Okay, I think that's the fullness. That's, a, that's a, um, not a specific number. It's just showing a fullness of people. Okay, and, and just one thing, as we walk through further, we see it's from all these different tribes of Israel. And so that may make you kind of wrestle with, well, I'm not part of Israel. So how, how am I going to stand against God's wrath? I'm not part of this. But if you remember last week, we heard about a lion. John was there. He's weeping. No one could open the scroll. We heard about a lion who had conquered. That's what he heard, remember? But when he looked, what did he see? He saw a lamb. He saw the fulfillment of the lion of the tribe of Judah came through a lamb. And, and, and here we have the same exact thing going on. John hears about 144,000 Israelites who are sealed. This lines up with the Old Testament focus on salvation for faithful Israelites. I think this is a military census, which which is why there's a number there, and it talks about these Israelites who are, who are on war for the Lord, okay? And there were certainly some Gentiles and non-Jewish people, but for the most part, the Old Testament was about the Jews, okay? It was primarily this Jewish thing. But when John hears about 144,000, and he turns to look, he doesn't, doesn't see 144,000. Instead, he sees the fulfillment. In, in verse 9, look, after this I looked. So he heard 144,000. He turns and he looks, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What is this? This is the church. This is you and me. This is, and some people will accuse this of being replacement theology. This is not replacement theology. Let me ask you a question. Um, does the butterfly replace the caterpillar? No, that's the fulfillment of it. And God's plans were always to reach all people from all nations. We see this in Ephesians 2. He's making one new man out of Israel and out of the Gentiles. And so the fulfillment of the, the Old Testament prophecies is fulfilled in the church. When people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are there gathered before the throne, worshiping the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, verse 11, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. What an amazing scene. And if you're a believer today, this is you. 
Okay, verse 13, we figure out who these people are. One of the elders addressed me, said, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I love John's response. Sir, you know. Like, I feel like you're, you're probably the guy to ask that. I feel like maybe this is a rhetorical question, right? So, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Normally when you put a robe in blood, it doesn't come out white. This is imagery again. Isn't that awesome? Our sins are washed by the blood of Jesus. Okay, and so again, letting the cat out of the bag, I think the last 2,000 years have all been tribulation for God's people, and it's only going to intensify. So I think we're part of it. It just happens to be we're kind of cushioned in America. But the people who overcome, like the churches were told, overcome, be faithful unto death, overcome. Those who overcome will have the tree of life. They'll be in the paradise of God. This is what we're commanded to do. This is why revelation is given to us, to give us boldness to persevere for the Lord. So the question, who can stand against the day of God's wrath? Only those who have been sealed and who have washed their robes by the blood of the Lamb. Only those who have come to the Lord and, know, and known that they are sinners separated from God. And they believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose again and they've asked him to save them. Those are the people who are going to be able to stand on the day of God's wrath. Not because of our own righteousness, but because we've been given new robes. Washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And what is it going to look like? Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Normally a lamb isn't the shepherd. I love this. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what's coming for us. If you're a believer today, that's where we're going to be. Before God, he's going to wipe away our tears. I mean, that's, that's the future. And we're going to see an even more beautiful picture of this at the end of Revelation. But the last few weeks, I've left you with a question. I'm going to leave you with another question. Will you be able to stand on that day? If, if, if the end is tomorrow and God brings his judgment, are you going to be able to stand? Let's say you don't live until the final day. Let's say you die before then. The Bible says when we die, we give an account before the Lord. We stand in judgment. Will you be able to stand? I will not be able to stand that day because I'm a pastor, because I try to be a good husband, because I try to, try to be nice to people, because I try to share my faith. That's not why I'm going to be able to stand. I'll be able to stand Because I have repented of my sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given me his robes of righteousness. And when when someone asks me, are you going to be able to stand? I'm pointing to Jesus. I'm going to be able to stand because of him, not because of me. Are you trusting Jesus for salvation? Have you washed your robe white in the blood of the lamb? If not, would you call out to him today and be saved? But if you have, can I just encourage you to rest and rejoice in this truth? That Jesus is holding the scroll? That all the chaos of this age that we live in is under his sovereign rule and reign and he has a purpose for all of it? And greatest of all, we know that we do not have to fear death or judgment or God's wrath because Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for us on the cross and we will be able to stand. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these chapters. Lord, just the reminder that all of history is under your control and that you have a plan for all of the chaos that takes place and ultimately that we as as your people will be able to stand Jew and Gentile together as the people of God throughout the ages before your throne from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lord, that's what we look forward to. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.